Hello, the listener. Welcome to Charity Chat. I'm your host, Samuel Davies. In this episode, we speak to Sean Atwood about his life, fascinating life, and how he presents his story to different audiences. We talk about advice for speakers and how to do a good TED Talk, of which Sean has done too. And we also find out from Sean how he was helped by charities and how he now gives back by helping charities and we hear about Sean's journey from incarceration to release to becoming a published author and finally to how he uses his experience to give back to charities that he says saved his life. It's a fascinating story but be warned Sean's story is shocking and not suitable for children or those of a weak constitution. If you're listening to this in public or in the vicinity of children we recommend you save it for another time or pop in your headphones and listen. Interviewing Sean is producer for Charity Chat, Dawn Ballard. Here we go. Hi, Sean. Thank you for joining us today for Charity Chat. Uh, We're here at Quarter Five uh, Fundraising Recruitment's uh, head office. Um, So I just wanted to kind of have a chat with you just about your experiences um, you've been through quite a lot. Um, you've supported charities. Charities have supported you, yeah. and um, and now you're kind of there doing some public speaking and things. So they're all the kind of things that we're we're looking to cover. So, okay. um, should we start with kind of a, a recap of your story? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so as a young person, I was dazzled by the Arizona lifestyle, and then after I finished uni, I went out there, worked in the stock market made a lot of money when I had no common sense and started to throw rave parties and import ecstasy. So I take full responsibility for May 16, 2002, when the SWAT team smashed my door down, ended up in the jail that's got the highest rate of death in America, started to write everything down, like the conditions, dead rats in the food, cockroaches crawling on us at night, guards murdering mentally ill prisoners. My writing was smuggled out of the jail, put on the internet as a blog, John's Jail Journal, and it went on to attract international media attention to the conditions. So that sent my life in a whole new positive direction. But that came about with the help of a lot of good people, including some charities. So who were the charities that supported you through that? The two main charities that supported me out of London were Prisoners Abroad and the Kersler Trust. Like, yeah, because prisoners abroad, obviously, because you're a UK person, but you were out in America, and that's where yeah. you got caught. So that's where you ended up doing your time. Because I know you tried to get back to the UK, but that didn't really work for you, did it? If you're a UK citizen in a foreign prison, there are some prisons, for example, where if you have a medical condition and you don't have money to pay for the medicine, you die. So prisoners abroad, they assign you a caseworker and if you're in a situation where you need life-saving medical attention, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll pay for it. And um, these guys are doing this wonderful work and actually saving people's lives. Wow. Yeah. So how did they find you or how did you find them? Okay, so the British Embassy helped me as well. And we became aware of prisoners abroad. And I registered with them and they assigned someone to me. And, you know, I wasn't in in a a situation where I needed any life-saving medical treatment or anything like that. But they were part of a long string of events that completely 
ending up launching um, launching me back into the workforce and as a productive member of society. Because what they actually did was, right before I got released from prison, they entered a short story of mine into a, the Kersler Trust Awards. Now this is the second That's the charity. charity yeah. yeah, Kersler Trust. They believe in rehabilitating prisoners through art. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. So the fact that the prisoners abroad person with my mum submitted the story to the Kersler Trust Awards was a, a life-changing thing. I didn't realise it at the time. In fact, it was so much longer when the result came in from that award. Uh, I'd actually completely forgotten that it, it had been entered into that comp- into that um, competition. So this was from one of your blogs that you were doing? No, I wrote out. a short story oh, okay. about what's called a shit slinger okay. in super maximum security prison. Do I want to ask what that is? <laughs> <laughs> In Supermax, because prisoners don't get out of their cells and interact with each other in the normal way, you're locked down all day, Yeah. they can't settle disputes in the traditional way, which is by their fists. Right. So they weaponize crap. Right. Now, I'll just give you a basic example. So a shit slinger might get a chicken bone from his meal. He might make a blowpipe. Right. And then he'll put a crap on the chicken bone. And as you're going past the cell, they'll use the blowpipe to dart you. And then what will happen is that it will pierce your skin, the crap, your blood system, it will then circulate throughout your body, the crap into you your system. Bear in mind, um, where I was housed, two thirds of the prisoners had hepatitis C. Oh, goodness. Um, these aren't the safest places when it comes to bacteria. And it can really mess your immune system up. Sure. Now, some of these shit slingers would leave these concoctions for days so mold would grow on them and they create all these kind of weapons um like the the uh one had the equivalent to an uzi with a shampoo bottle and all these tubes and this stuff would spray all over your face there was one guy in there who was the rambo of the shit slingers the guards took all of his stuff out of his cell and he sat in his cell with liquid shit in his mouth waiting for a guard to come along and the guard came along and they were so surprised when this guy just went in his oh. face. The guard was so stunned, all the crap just went up his nose and oh, in his mouth no. and his eyes and everything. Yeah. So I wrote a fic- <laughs> I wrote a fictional story based on some stories I'd heard in prison about the Schitzlinger versus another prisoner called Otis who ended up in this. Uh, building with the Schitzlinger. It, it was like a rivalry between these two guys. Right. So. I'm just going to backtrack a bit. When my writing was getting smuggled out of the jail, I was writing about the, living with the cockroaches and stuff like that. And The Guardian put an excerpt about the cockroaches and it got um, some media attention and as well the BBC picked up on it. And um, I got a literary agent contacted me and said, look, you've got a good voice. Um, would, you know, would, why don't you think about coming, becoming an author? So. I threw my energy into that then, and when I got released, my sister had co-wrote a book with me, she's a journalist, and we used some of my blog entries and and what she'd written, and we had a literary agent, and that book was going to get presented to the book fair, and then we didn't hear from the literary agent, I've only been out of prison, you know, it's my first year, I can't get a job, criminal record and stuff, I'm thinking being an author could be a good opportunity, and then we found out from the literary agency that that 
literary agent. She'd been diagnosed with cancer at age 41, I think. Right. Sent home to, to spend the last months alive with her parents and she died. Oh, so now I'm contacting publishers and agents saying I've got the best book ever written <laughs> and I don't know what I'm doing, so I'm burning bridges. Yeah. And I can't get anywhere and I'm unemployed. I'm living with my parents, I've got no money. The doll are telling me you need to start telling these telesales people we're sending you to interviews with that you don't have a criminal record or they're never going to employ you. <laughs> so I'm totally, I'm totally depressed now thinking what I'm going to do with my life. Yeah. And then I get this call out of the blue from London. It's the Kersler Trust and prisoners abroad. And they say, that story you were entered into however many years ago it was, <laughs> you've won a first prize. And would you come down and read it to an audience at the Royal Festival Hall? Oh, wow. So, you know, this is a really big deal to me. I've won a prize, you know, and um, I went down there. It must be quite terrifying, like, to oh, sort was. of go from feeling Public quite speaking is, is extremely terrifying in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. So I met the Curse of Trust people and I told them my predicament. I didn't fully understood what they did at that point in time. They said, look, we have a mentorship program mm -hmm. whereby if you're interested in a particular art, it doesn't have to be writing, could be poetry, could be photography, could be anything. We will get a professional person from that field to mentor you. Every month this person will travel and meet you in a safe place like a library and they'll, they'll, they'll help you um, cultivate that skill. And that's what they did with me. Now yeah. usually the person will go to the, the prison where the prisoners have, but because I'd already been released, they made an exception and in the beginning this this lady came from some bird watching part of Scotland <laughs> all the way to Liverpool uh, met, met me in um, some some museum cafe in Liverpool and her name is Sally Hinchcliffe she was a, a published author and even though she was this little bird watching lady she was a proper no-nonsense okay. uh, ball-breaking character <laughs> that I could deal with that kind of person, you know. Yeah, used to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what you do is when you're on this mentorship scheme, you have to set a goal in the beginning. Okay. And in my case, my goal was to get a new literary agent and to then get a publisher. Because if you want to get published traditionally, you've got to have a literary agent first. They're the gatekeepers. Right. Um, Publishers don't want unsolicited manuscripts. They go to the bottom of the pile. They want the literary agent to read them first and to get the cream and the crop. So we set this goal and Sally Hinchcliffe, one of the first things she told me was, if you want to be an author, it's one of the lowest paid professions, make sure you get a real job. Yeah. And it, it took me 10 years to learn how to make money from, from selling books. So she, she was quite correct on that. Um, but within six months of her working her magic, I had offers from a few literary agents right. and I was blessed to go with a guy out of London, Robert Kirby with United Agents and we talked for hours at his office and they even walked me back to the tube station, we, I think we spoke <laughs> for another hour at the tube station and with him working his magic then he sent, um, he helped me develop my story into a trilogy of books, mm -hmm. Hard Time, Party Time, Prison Time. Because most of the media interest in my life has been revolved around the jail, that's why we went with hard time first, because nobody knew who I was, so we had to like try and capitalise on that interest. Now, once you've got the agent, it's not that easy, though, still to get published. 
if you've no, if you've heard of the story of how uh, you know Harry Potter got published stuff like that, sure? <laughs> nearly every single re uh, agent, uh, publisher rejected it. Right. I think it was the daughter of one of the editors who read it and said, "You need to you need to take oh, really? this book." <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. So, so about who you know, <laughs> right time, right place. <laughs> so I think I got twenty plus rejections over this year, one year period, and now I'm thinking again. Yeah, what am I doing? All this way. Yeah. And it's not going to get published. You know, my heart was breaking. And then finally, a division of Random House said they were going to do it. And um, I haven't looked back since there. They published my life story as a trilogy. And now I've built up a following of my own and I've just started my own publishing company. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. it's proper rags to riches to rags to riches story then. <laughs> well, we're working on Getting the riches there. again, yes. <laughs> So, so that's great that you had that support from that charity yeah. and you're helping them. So yeah. kind of how do you give back to them now? Like how? Okay, so those two, two charities I credit with, you know, saving my life. And if, if I, a lot of people get out of prison, they can't get a job and they go mm. back to drugs and they go back yeah. to crime. Potentially that could have happened to me. So mm. I can't understate the effect that the, the help these people really had on me. Um, Temptation was there to go back to stuff, and they helped me keep focus and, st and stay on this, this straight and narrow path. So, I've donated money to them and books to them over the years, but also I help train the mentors now. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, so they come in, all the different mentors, and there's usually like a session at the Kersler Trust building in one of the prisons here in London. Um, and I train them and I answer their questions and stuff. And also, when they do uh, fundraisers, uh, public speaking is required. Sure. I'll step up and yeah. do talks for them as well. Yeah, because yeah. you do a lot of talks, don't you, to a real variety of audiences. Yes. And I know you work a lot with schools yeah. and, and doing education and taking yeah. your message to schools. So mm -hmm. how do you find that differs compared to kind of, you know, to talk to a school audience versus, yeah. are the kids the worst? Do they ask the <laughs> most difficult questions? <laughs> Um, let me backtrack a little bit again to how all this came about then. So, first of all, when I was young and irresponsible and throwing these rave parties, I just thought I was keeping the party going. I didn't see the horror and the harm drugs caused to society. But once I got in the jail where 90% were shooting up heroin and meth, two-thirds hepatitis C, yellow jaundice skin, teeth rotting out, were it's hard, it's really hard to get any kind of medical treatment. So they just let these guys die because it would bankrupt the system to pay to give them all the treatment for the hepatitis C. Gosh. Unless you're rich and you've got a lawyer or you, you know law and you can sue, that's the only way you get the treatment. So then I'd seen the horror of what drug use led to in the jail, you know, and I do yoga. I wanted to try and restore my karma. So I was thinking maybe now I can see, you know, I've put people on that road. In the future, I could perhaps use my story to balance my karma, but I wasn't quite mm. sure how that was gonna sure. come about. So when I did get released, I did some BBC interviews. Um, I did one with Eddie Murr and a Harley Street drug counselor, Tony McClellan, he runs the McClellan practice. He contacted the BBC and he said, look, um, I've got a business whereby I send people with interesting stories and cautionary tales into schools. Mm you know, to show the kids the horror of what these things can lead to. So he, he contacted the BBC, they put me in touch, and I was grateful for the opportunity, but because I was institutionalised after doing almost six years in this intense conditions, I said to him, look, I've got to get my head straight before I even attempt to sure. do a talk in a school. 
And it was a year and a half before I, uh, I spoke at Bishop's Stortford College. I think it was year 10 or year 11. And I was so nervous, I couldn't even eat my breakfast. Oh. <laughs> I paced like a prisoner in a cell <laughs> at the front of that hall, soaked in sweat. Oh. All this raw, nervous energy crackling off me. And I got out of there and I called my mum and I said, look, here's what happened. They must have thought I was a complete not a lunatic. I'm totally not cut out for public speaking. This was a disaster. So now, you know, even though things are slowly progressing in the literary world, I'm not making any money at all off the books. That, that took years to start to make some money off it. Can't get public speaking going, so I'm still on unemployment benefit with the government. And now I'm thinking, I've just had a public speaking opportunity great opportunity, it's bombed, now that, that's over as well, so now I'm getting depressed again. Oh no. Yeah, so the school sent me an email so many weeks later, and they said, we get a professional public speaker in every week, yeah. our kids voted your talk very highly, and we would like to invite you back. <laughs> so, so, I'm like, so now, because my confidence um, has been beaten up, now my confidence is starting to rise again. Sure. And thanks to the help of all these different brilliant teachers, you know, I didn't have any clue what I was doing. I wasn't a, a, a seasoned or trained public speaker. But these teachers at the end of the talk would take me to one side and say, look, maybe you should do a bit of this. Maybe include the kids, you know, get them to dress up and, and, and read your uh, prison stuff and dress up in the prison outfits. This was the, <laughs> all these ideas came from the teachers. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, so the teachers have really shaped the talk over the years. It's it, it constantly changing. And um, it's got to the point now where I do over 100 talks a year, mostly like to uh, mid-teenagers and, okay. and college-age kids. Yeah. Okay. And um, so you say you sort of they like to dress up and, and be part of it. Yeah. And, but how do you tell your story without glamorising it? How do you mm. make it kind of real without being too harsh yeah. and too exciting? Like. How do you work out how to, the tone of your message? My huge challenge when I started out in the schools was to try and get in there and not glamorise it. Yeah. And I discussed it with my parents. They're like my strategy team. <laughs> and we structured the talk mostly around the jail conditions and the horrible consequences of what choosing to drugs led to. Okay. So, you know, I've got this book, Party Time, there's 10 hours of audiobook content in it, and I wouldn't be delivering that book to the students, right. material <laughs> to the students. And if stuff came across as slightly glamorised in the beginning, like some of the prison stuff, you know, from feedback from teachers, I was able to eliminate that content and put more things in that emphasised the consequences. Right. So again, brilliant feedback from the teachers. It's at the point now where the students all get feedback sheets themselves. Okay. And they, we, get, we get to completely see the talk through their eyes. Sure. Yeah, and if you go on my Twitter, my Twitter likes is all live feedback coming in from the kids. Great. Yeah. So, yeah, because you, so obviously you blogged and you write books and mm -hmm. you give talks. So you've got all these different kind of uh, methods of communication yeah. that you're trying to kind of balance. Yes. And obviously, 
okay, you tailor your message um, to the children at the mm-hmm. schools, but then they can go and look up stuff and find the more harrowing things. Yes. And so that must be quite yeah. hard to kind of, like <laughs> when you feel responsible and you're putting out lots of different messages yeah. to sort of get that right. But, uh, but somehow you kind of manage it. That's all good. Just still being invited back. <laughs> it's <laughs> been a very well. delicate balancing act. Yeah. I, mean, I think the attitude of some of the teachers is, if the kids go away and find stuff out about you outside of school hours, that's completely on them. Sure. If you come in here and you deliver your content to the kids and say something that's inappropriate and they tell their parents, that's on us. Yeah. So they're shielded within what happens within the walls of, of their school or sure. college. Okay. And yeah. you feel like, because um, I'm thinking from a charity perspective, mm. obviously charities have got stories to tell. They yeah. want to get to a variety of audiences. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm thinking if you've got a health charity or you're talking about cancer and death and mm-hmm. lots of things that could be really kind of quite close to the core, but yeah. nothing I think gets closer to the core than some of the things that you've seen and dealt mm-hmm. with firsthand from your experiences from the drugs and from the prison. Yeah. Um, so kind of getting that message across must be sort of very difficult um, but you know you seem to manage it and that's great and through lots of different methods of uh, media as well yeah over the years all the different methods of media have been employed and it's it's all built up quite solidly I think on my YouTube channel right now I got about two million views in the last month which was a record Brilliant. and a lot of the kids now are seeing my talk at the schools and colleges and then they get on the YouTube channel and they follow up and I think that really re-emphasizes the lesson sure yeah so you can actually be sort of warts and all with the the young people they can buy into that you know you're you're holding Mm -hmm. back but up to a point because actually that's what makes it real to them isn't it sort of hearing the specifics of your story the young people tell me that i go in and just give it to them straight and they're sick of people going in and talking down to them and you know not not being at a level that they could connect with really. Sure. And when someone goes in, I think, and just lectures them about the consequences of drugs and what it can do yeah, to your brain do and things this like and that. Don't do yeah, that. Don't do this. It, it's no context, is there? Yeah. So you tell a teenager not to do something. Yeah, they're gonna go and do it. <laughs> they're gonna straight go out and do it. My drug education was this is your brain on drugs, and it showed some eggs frying in a pan. <laughs> wow. So then I tried ecstasy. You're like, oh, and I'm just so smiling much. and dancing. I'm thinking something's not right here. This is here. better than my fry-up. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so you talked about kind of first going in and that fear, yeah. um, which obviously somehow you turned into giving mm. a brilliant talk. And, and mm. it was mainly because it comes from your heart. You're very um, passionate about you know, what you've been through yeah. and the message that you want to get through at the end. So I guess yeah. kind of for tips for public speaking, mm. it's kind of using that passion um, being mm-hmm. really sort of close to the course, knowing your stuff, obviously, which yeah. is great when you're telling your own story. But if you were telling it, um, if you're putting another message across, mm-hmm. that would be slightly different. But yeah. When I was a teenager, I had teenage anxiety. That was compounded by almost getting beat to death by some drunk. They left me for dead, smashed me in the face with an iron bar, knocking bits of my teeth out. And it was years later when I had to address the root causes of why I got into drugs went deep inside myself and understood that this had contributed to my drug taking. I was self-medicating for PTSD. Now, yeah, I was the life and soul of the party for over 10 years, but inside I was still this anxious, shy person because I was always on drugs when I was out. For almost six years being in a prison, 
where you're living with people, some of whom you would not choose to live with in the real world. Um, <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> where you can be sat having dinner, and next thing, someone's just getting stabbed in the neck. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, my adrenaline was going constantly, but when I got out of prison, the world was a safer place to me as an anxious person. I wasn't feeling that anxiety anymore because I've been in this. And my therapist said, one of the best ways to overcome fears is to meet your fears head on. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't going out and socializing sober. I was hiding from it, right. taking drugs to mask that. I was forced for six years to confront that fear. Now, to have some level of anxiety is normal. Mm. It can put you in the zone and, and, and help your performance, but to have too much like I did can be detrimental. So yeah, when I was started out in public speaking, that anxiety kicked right back in. And I was, um, you know, I thought I was making a fool of myself and stuff. But over the years, I got used to talking to young people. So now when I go into a school, I don't have that anxiety anymore. However, when I talk to adults, which is not very often, I do, I do I'm doing funzing talks right now. Yeah, well, um, well we met last time. Yeah, in London, in Bristol Alcatraz, and Manchester. In Alcatraz, in yeah. a prison-themed bar. <laughs> I was wearing an orange jumpsuit. You came to deliver a talk, so this is a little bit more formal now, which is yeah. good. But um, yeah, I mean, strange context, but um, yeah, the, the funzing talks are, are good. And, and it was really interesting. I'm glad you enjoyed so. the experience, yeah. So I'm doing up to about three or four talks a month for adults presently. So I am getting more used to it. I'm getting less nervous in front of adults. Now, I was asked to do two TED Talks. I've done two okay. TED Talks. Now, because TED is such a big thing in my mind, the big platform, worldwide, you know, so prestigious. When I did my first TED Talk, I was so nervous. And I wasn't allowed to have a drink on the stage. Right. My mouth went dry right away. <laughs> I was hyperventilating throughout the whole of the talk. Oh no. I managed to get through it. I managed to, to um, do it and get the content delivered. But when I look back, I thought it was a good public speaker. You know, I'm doing almost 100 <laughs> talks a year at this point. Yeah, and then I'm doing a TED talk. And I'm a good public speaker. But when I went back and looked at it, I thought, oh my goodness. So when I was asked to do another TED talk, that's good, they invited you back again. Yes. I think you're quite critical of yourself. You're quite hard on yourself, aren't you? What I did was, I hired a voice coach. Okay. Yeah. So I'm still thinking I'm quite a good speaker until I go to this voice coach. Right. And I, she watches the video of me doing my TED talk, and then she just looks at me and she goes, you've got um, hyperventilation, um, you know, your inappropriate breathing, inappropriate laughing, um, All the things I'm doing now. <laughs> <laughs> camera there. She just reeled off ten things like bam, 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 bam. <laughs> like, but I was in the right place apparently yeah. because I'm a perfectionist, and if people point things out, I do like to address the situation. So if anyone does aspire to be a public speaker, I would suggest I had up speak. I had no idea I had up speak. Living in America for almost 17 of years. Course. Have a nice day now. How are you doing today? <laughs> I was in prison in Arizona. I didn't even notice nice, that I had up nice. speak for 
all these years. Goodness. Yeah. Um, so, so you sort of went back to basics then, did you? Yeah. Sort of really thinking through, she, how do I talk? <laughs> yeah. She would have me practice my TED Talk in front of her every session. Right. And whenever any of these things kicked in, stop, say that again oh, without the upspeak. Yeah. Say that again without inappropriate smiling. Right. You know, body language is excessive right now. Get your arms down. <laughs> You're supposed to use body language to emphasize a certain point, but you're diluting it by using, you're flapping your arms all the time. Right. Um, wow, interesting. Yeah, though. yeah. All so those all these things. different things. There's also a number of books on doing TED Talks, and there's also um, all kinds of information available on the internet about doing TED Talks. Now, I was used to speaking for an hour, so TED Talks like 17, 18 minutes. Right. So the big challenge for me was to get that content condensed as well. Yeah. Um, and yet still put across your passion, still yes. put everything about it that makes it tangible and interesting to them. Yeah. But in But what can time. actually happen is if you get it right, you can have a real punchy talk because you can get your more, more dramatic elements and really leave the, the audience um, pretty, pretty uh, engaged. Yeah. So... Yeah, you know, if people are aspiring to be public speakers, I would recommend you read these books on TED Talks. The guy who runs TED's done a book on it. He's done some CDs and, and, and videos. Okay. And um, try and get all those things refined. And practice. Do that in front of the mirror or in front of your harshest yeah. critic. <laughs> My <laughs> first TED Talk was out of Switzerland, University of Basel. And they assigned me a person. And I would have to, I would have to record my talk and send it to them. Right. And then they would give all the feedback and change it. Now, at this point, though, I wasn't in up in front of the big audience with the TED red <laughs> carpet and the lights and everything. So I wasn't, these nervous ticks. Yeah. They, they weren't seeing these nervous ticks because I'm just sat in my living room recording this thing. You have a YouTube channel and that's, that's developed quite a lot, hasn't it? Do you want yes. to tell me about that? So. My dad started my YouTube channel when I was in prison and I didn't really think about it all that much as a medium because I was a blogger. Right. My focus was writing, it wasn't really a visual focus. Yeah. So for almost eight, seven or eight years I really didn't do anything on YouTube even though I had this channel. I did one video when I got out, how to survive Arizona's deadliest jail or something like that. Um, <laughs> if you're going to start, start strong. Yeah. <laughs> that video did all right, but I still wasn't all that infused about YouTube for some reason. I was more focused on writing. Well, writing's and, what you'd been doing all that time, isn't it? Yeah. So with your sneaky blog and things. You were what completely doing, transformed so. my YouTube channel was Making a Murderer. Okay. Have you watched it? No. Okay. So... Making a Murderer, docu-series on Netflix. Yeah, I remember hearing about it. I think I'm the only person that hasn't watched it, so that's my homework. Two innocent guys serving life for a, a murder sexual assault that they didn't do. The first, the, one of the guys, he just served 18 years for another attempted murder oh, sexual no. assault that he hadn't done. They were about to pay him 36 million in compensation. A woman goes missing. Bam, let's put him back in. We'll save 36 million right there. Yeah, yeah. So when I saw this docuseries, it is so emotionally engaging. Because about all the things all that were kind corruption. of missed. And, because I listened yeah. to Serial. So I did the Serial yeah. podcast, uh, which again was similar about mm. kind of, did he do it, did he not do it? It's yeah. all not very black and white, like you would yeah. kind of hope it, it was when it comes to someone's life and, and going to prison for it. So My heart was broken to see 
the family members of these two innocent men everything they had to go through. I mean, I, I deserved my punishment and it actually did me good and, and sent me off this new path. But to see innocent people get framed by cold, calculating psychopaths that are working in the justice system, that are bigger criminals than the criminals in the system, it broke my heart, especially seeing the effects on the family members. Now, I knew it was gonna get a huge response from people and people would want to start to help these guys. Right. And one of the things people would do is automatically write to these guys. You can't just send a letter to someone, blah, 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 and send it to them in prison. You can't just put things in the mail and send them to prison. There's all kinds of rules. Okay. Otherwise the prisoners won't get these things. Right. So I thought, okay, what I can do is put a video up, how to write to Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey. Right. How to buy them things from the inmate store. Didn't know what would happen, but these videos went viral quite fast. Thousands of letters that were sent to Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey got sent back because they hadn't even put the prison number on the envelope. Right. Something as simple as that. But, but the public doesn't know yeah, this. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's not an everyday thing, yeah, is it? Yeah, no, no. <laughs> so I started to do um, regular videos about making a murder as more information right. came to light. And speaking about charity projects, um, the information from my research was put into a book that I wrote called Unmaking a Murderer. That's right. Yes, I've seen because it. I'd been ranting and raving about these methods prosecutors and detectives use that are, they can use them on innocent people as well as guilty people, but the certain tricks that they play. Okay. And I've been ranting and raving about this stuff for years and no one's been paying any attention. He's just a prisoner, lock him up for a way to key who cares. But when Making a Murderer came out, it showed all of those corrupt methods that they employ to the entire world and the most of the people who watched that who, who had hearts, beating hearts, were <laughs> outraged by it. For sure, yeah. Yeah. So I wrote a book, The Ten Methods That Are Employed, because I saw them constantly using the jail on people. And um, I set it up as a charity project whereby half of the money goes to the legal representatives for Stephen Avery and Brennan Dassey yeah. and half of the money goes to something I've set up whereby I donate books to kids in schools and to prisoners as well. Kids in state schools, I should say, and to uh, prisoners. Okay. Because I managed to read over a thousand books in prison yes, over just under six years. Because yeah, pe people from all over the world sent me books and books became the lifeblood of my yeah. rehabilitation. Read a lot of philosophy and psychology and able to go inside myself and address the root causes of what I was getting up to. I felt it was also my karma to try and give back literature. Um, so that's what I do. And in the past three years now, I've managed to donate 20,000 books to kids in state schools and to prisoners. Goodness. Yeah. So all my public appearances to adults as well, so the funding, for example, I sell books at those events, and that money also goes into um, getting free books to, to, to these people. Brilliant. Yeah. So um, that, was, that was the beginning of my YouTube channel. I had about seven or eight years of not doing hardly anything on YouTube. <laughs> I had, a, I had my followers were in the hundreds. Now, and then it peaked. <laughs> as building up the Stephen Avery stuff, my followers went rapidly to about 2,000 and it just started to go up from the, in the Gosh. thousands. Um, but, but then it kind of died down. I still not, I'm nowhere near 10,000. Then what happened was I was asked to go on the True Geordie podcast. Okay. Thank you, Brian and Lawrence, if they ever see this. Um, True Geordie podcast is, I think it's the biggest podcast in the UK right okay. now. 
I think they get almost a million people viewing and listening combined on iTunes and YouTube. Wow. Yeah. So I went on the, and out of all the interviews I've done, I just felt great chemistry with these guys. You know, you can go on the, you can say whatever you want, you can swear. <laughs> um, it, it's no, you just, you just go for it. That then boosted it about another two or three thousand. And then I went on True Geordie again. I went on After Prison Show, which is another big one. And then Unilad put me on their YouTube channel a couple of weeks ago. And since going on the Unilad one two weeks ago, I've gone up from 19,000 subscribers to 32,000. It's going up a thousand a day right now. That's crazy. And then yeah. with this, charity chat, <laughs> <laughs> anything could happen. Anything could happen. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So quite a different form of kind of social media then and something that you're loving and enjoying and quite a long way from the blogging to, oh, to now that. Oh, it's so different. But... Like you mentioned earlier about standing in front of a camera and just doing these videos, it took me a lot of just getting used to it and um, the editing as well. To this yeah. day, I still, I've just paid 100 quid for some new software and even just trying to trim a video was mind-boggling to me and I ended up posting a video to YouTube that was all blurred it wasn't the right dimensions and stuff and I need to go to classes now I think <laughs> to learn how to do video editing oh well that's yeah. not a bad thing <laughs> it's good to keep up skilling isn't it and yeah it's definitely. amazing all the doors that are now kind of available to you and open to you to, to go through from where I feel you incredibly lucky now. that people are so interested in my story yeah. still and I think because we're at an inflection point in society where people used to think prisoners lock them up for away the key, but because of the war on drugs, mm. the average arrest where I was housed was a black kid or a Mexican kid with a little bit of weed getting yeah. two to five years. It's crazy. And these predatory private prisons getting $50,000 a year of taxpayers' money per prisoner. Mm -hmm. The public have woken up that this private prison stuff is a racket. The war on drugs is a racket on the taxpayers. And they're sick of it. So I think that's why my story right now and the things I'm writing about in my books, I've got a war on drugs series of books. There's this inflection point in society and um, that interest is, is um, coming into my uh, social media, my literature. Okay. Yeah. So then on social media, so obviously we've covered a few things, but mm. what about kind of Twitter and, and that constant engagement? Because obviously you've got yeah. one story that you're telling of your yeah. kind of your life. and mm -hmm. But how do you keep making that kind of, how do you keep getting that out there and keeping it interesting and relevant? Do you just sort of grab those opportunities as and when they come up with things like the television or things that are happening within politics? Or so in the beginning, when I got out of prison, I tried to write a blog entry, at least one blog entry a week. Which was smuggling out, weren't you? Um, prior to prison, prior, oh, prior to my to release. Prison, sorry, yeah. Prior to my release, yeah, yeah. Um, and then my, when you came? My, I, was, I had a tiny little, you know, like a golf pencil, like yeah. a betting shop pencil, yeah. um, <laughs> sharpened on the prison door writing on this little legal paperwork, uh, sweating all over it because it's so hot in the desert. And my aunt would actually smuggle those blog entries out through maximum security prison. She would come and visit me on the weekends. Now in maximum security, have you seen when Hannibal Lecter gets a visit from Clarice in Silence yep, of the Lambs? Through the door. Through the plexiglass the <laughs> window. And he's like chained down. Yeah. So in maximum security, my aunt would come and visit me and it was like that, I'm chained down. Goodness. And my aunt's on the other side of the plexiglass. So I couldn't 
release what I'd written down to her sure. physically. Yeah. But there was a loophole that I took advantage of. Okay. Now, I was allowed to release property to my aunt. Okay. Now, prison property means like letters people have sent to me, legal paperwork, um, books that I've read. So what I did was the things that I wrote down, the blog entries, I hid in my property. Right. I then had to fill out a form and ask the jail for permission to release my property. Gosh. I know it was a lot of steps to get these permissions. And then once um, that came back with the permission slip signed, I take my property and the permission slip to the visitation area. I'm handcuffed like this, holding it. Give it to the visitation officer. He puts it on his desk. I go in the cubicle. My aunt comes through. I get to speak to her. And the first time I'm up there with all these blog entries and and, and they're all hidden, my heart's going ding, 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 I'm thinking this redneck guard over here is going to start looking through this stuff. And they do look through the stuff, but they're trained to find contraband. Right, okay. So contraband is cash, drugs, syringes, weapons. So he's not looking at things that are written down. It's not standing yeah. out to him. So at the end of the visit with my aunt, I get unhandcuffed, told to go back to my house. All the visitors are leaving. As she's leaving, the guard gives her the property. She leaves the maximum security Madison Street Jail in Phoenix, Arizona goes home, types them up, emails them to my parents, and they put them on the internet as a blog, John's Jail Journal. Not Sean, because my mum was aware of the people that these guards had murdered. Sure, oh goodness. These were high profile cases. Brian Crenshaw, partially blind shoplifter, failed to produce his ID for the evening meal. Guards beat him, um, severe internal injuries, he went into a coma, he died of a month later. Scott Norberg, mentally ill man, they brought him in. Guards started beating him, electrocuting him with tasers. A female guard tried to stop it. Stop beating him. His face is turning blue. They, they brushed her off, they kept beating him. Prisoners watching started yelling, why are you still beating him, he's already dead. Oh and even God, after that, sick. they were beating the corpse after it turned blue and everything. They were like a pack of uh, animals, they just couldn't stop. Yeah. Those cases were caught on camera. Hmm. Family members of the victims of the guards sued the jail and were awarded compensation. What do you think the boss of the jail did to the guards that were found responsible for those murders in federal court? Well, you'd hope hang them out to dry, but... Gave promotions and pay rises. So this is the environment my mum is worried about my writing getting detected in and the guards retaliating against me. Sure. So my mum didn't want us doing the blog at all in the beginning. There was a big family discussion. Uh, but in the end, my, my dad was one of the impetuses because he'd read a book about um, Salem Pax, the Baghdad blogger, right. started a blog when the bombs were falling on Baghdad, given the perspective of an ordinary Iraqi. And that just got in the news and blogs weren't really that big in the news. And this was just the beginning of it. So it was my dad's kind of was contributing to the idea. And my mum was like, no, he's gonna end up, the guards are gonna end up killing him. So in the end, we said we'll go with John's Jail Journal as the name of it. Yes. And um, I didn't think anyone would read it apart from family and friends. And then the Guardian picked up on it and the BBC picked up on it. It snowballed and it's still going strong. Yeah. Wow, amazing. But over the years then, so when I got out of prison, I would write uh, religiously. I was posting these blogs. And maybe I'm sharing them a little bit on other social media. 
it was my space back then, I think. Okay, yep. <laughs> um, but now my main focus of the week now is doing my YouTube video. Yeah. And then I will then share that on Twitter. Yeah. I've got almost 20 Facebook pages that I will share it on. Uh, I'll share it on LinkedIn. Okay. And um, somehow feeding it through all these different platforms, it just... It's got a momentum of its own. Sure. Yeah. So just keeps it, just keep out there. And I guess regular posting helps, keeps things fresh, doesn't it? So You've got to feed the algorithms with regular postings. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Okay. Um, well, that's great. Amazing. Mm. So much information there and so many sort of interesting things in regard to, you know, things we can take away about the kind of public speaking and, and tailoring things to yeah. audience. So yeah. um, thank you so much for your Thanks time for today. Really your appreciate time it. Well, yeah. And um, yeah, we will we'll stay in touch yeah. and see if there's maybe any questions from our uh, listeners moving forward. Um, yeah. And we'll get we'll good feedback to them with some answers and things. That'd but, be great. Uh, I'll do some videos on the answers. Sounds good. Yeah. Awesome. So Sean Atwood, thank you so much for contributing to Charity Chat. So, it's lovely to meet you. So glad you guys included me. Thanks for the invite. So there we go, dear listener. That was Sean Atwood speaking there to Charity Chat's Dawn Ballard. Telling our charity stories can be a massive challenge. How do we do it in an engaging way and respond to our audience? Well, Sean has given us some great tips there from responding to the public's interest in the Making a Murderer programme, which obviously was a very timely thing, and to adjusting what he says to fit with his audience, uh, which we all must do. And he does that, obviously, adjusting uh, based on feedback from the school talks he's given to uh, then adjust how he speaks to school children about his his stories and the cautionary tales of, uh, of what he's what he's been through. As Sean said, young people are sick of people talking down to them, and I wonder how many of us still do this when we're giving school talks or talking to certain audiences about the conditions of our beneficiaries' lives and how our charities help them. So I think there's a lot to be learnt there from from what Sean said. Uh, many of us suffer from the same public speaking anxiety that Sean talks about. It's interesting how Sean has started to overcome his and using it to tell his story to hopefully help others um, from following his path. There's also a philosophical point in what Sean says I think and he seems to have taken a lot of negative experiences and turned these into vital lessons for many thousands of people who now follow him um, on on social media and and see him giving, giving talks. So um, really good. Thanks so much, Sean, for that and for helping more people by contributing to Charity Chat. Um, Also, thank you, dear listener, for listening to the podcast. Uh, Please let us know what you thought of this episode. Uh, We're always interested to hear from you. We love to hear from you, in fact. And uh, we always answer you. So do get in touch with us through our website, charitychat.org.uk. Finally, thank you to all of our sponsors, Giant Squid Audio Lab, for sponsoring our podcast kit. They recently donated... More podcast kits will be doing new shows over the next few months, which will include discussion points and a number of people talking at the same time. Uh, Magda Axamit for the splendid website design that you can see at charitychat.org.uk. RR Yard Photography for the pro bono images dotted around our beautiful website. And Forest of Fools, who've been playing throughout the show and are going to be playing sound right now. Thank you for listening. Speak to you soon. Cheerio.